All right. Hello and welcome to the Mobility Podcast. Uh, it's great to have you guys back and hopefully everyone's staying safe and as close to sane as possible. Uh, I'm Pete Gould, uh, co-host here on the show, uh, and I am a founding uh, partner at Catapult Policy Strategies. Uh, I'm joined today by my co-host... Well, uh, thank you to Pete, uh, our, our most handsome uh, uh, of the Mobility Podcast uh, co-hosts. Uh, this is Greg Rogers. And before we uh, jump in, on, on behalf of our other co-host, Greg Rodriguez, uh, views are our own. Yes. So it's great to have you guys back and to be talking mobility uh, in very normal times. Um, but I'm actually really excited about our guest right now. Uh, our guest today is Henry Greenwich. He is a Good friend of mine, former colleague, uh, and someone who I just respect, who has, brings a really fascinating uh, background and experience. Uh, Henry and I met while we were working at the U.S. Department of Transportation together um, back in probably what feels like a 75 years ago, I think it was, Henry. Uh, and uh, from there, he has gone on and worked uh, in the upper echelons at uh, New York City DOT, uh, and then following that, he went to go work for Cruise Automation, to doing automa- uh, auto- autonomous vehicles, uh, and has now joined. Uh, he's been brought on. He's a fellow in residence at the NYU McSilver Institute, uh, where he's going to be focusing on unpacking uh, uh, how transportation, race, and poverty all intersect, uh, and in particular in the wake of COVID nineteen. So um, there is obviously uh, a lot going on. Uh, today and 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 what you're going to be working on, Henry, is is I think really does tie a lot of the the big topics that are going on in not just transportation but you know nationally uh, about you know what who we are as a country and and where how we got here and where do we want to go. So we're excited for I think what's going to be a really fascinating topic and conversation. Yeah, thanks, Pete. Um, really excited to be here. Honored to be here. In fact, I think I have a tremendous amount of respect for the platform that you all have created. Uh, I am definitely a listener of this podcast, so it's awesome to be here. And yeah, I am currently at the NYU McSilver Institute. And as you said, Pete, I'm going to be focused on the intersection between race, transportation and poverty. And this is just such an important time to talk about this subject. Um, Let me take a step back for a second. I came to NYU McSilver really because they were looking for the next issue that they wanted to focus on in the African-American community. So the McSilver Institute sits within the NYU Silver School uh, for Social Work, and they've really built themselves up over the last couple of years uh, by amplifying issues that impact the Black community. For example, they've focused on black suicide rates, which a lot of people don't know have been climbing steadily. And so they've done uh, lots of convenings here in New York City, but all over the country as well and have spurred some action in Washington, D.C. And so I've come on board really as this person who sort of worked in the public sector, as Pete mentioned. I've worked at Cruz uh, in the private sector and bring this different perspective that, quite frankly, really hasn't been talked about enough uh, in 
transportation, in mobility, in urban technology, in AVs. Uh, and so, quite frankly, that is the Black perspective. Um, you know, we're going to call it what it is. Um, I believe in naming things and being really specific when we're when we're talking about things. And so really what I'm trying to bring to NYU McSilver is a new perspective on issues that we've talked about for quite some time. So for example, if we're talking about uh, bike lanes, right? Um, what does that mean for black communities, right? If we're talking about TNCs, what does that mean for black communities? And my favorite subject, of course, AVs. What does that mean for black communities? What does this technology, uh, what does this technology mean for the promise of AVs? And have we really given thought about what it means uh, for those communities? Um, and so happy to be here and let's let's get into it. Yeah, no. So uh, let's definitely get into it. I mean, uh, I think COVID-19, you know, has really pulled back the curtain on kind of so many longstanding failures of our institutions from healthcare and access to transportation, employment rights, you know, you name it. I'm curious from your from your perspective, what have you been the most struck by that kind of had not been really visible or fully visible to you until it kind of it really was, uh, you know, put in the spotlight from COVID. And I, this is you personally. Yeah, me personally. So listen, I'm going to answer that question. But quick question for you guys. <laughs> anybody in the room black other than me? No. No. Okay. <laughs> and I've, that's a fair question <laughs> because, mm-hmm. I, you know, the, the, the diaspora is so wide, you actually can't look at a person and, and tell, you know, what their ethnicity is. And so I just want to know, you know, who's in the room when I'm having this conversation. Um, but to answer that specific question, I got to tell you, it was a public health issue. Now, I'm someone who has worked in the New York City mayor's office. I focused on climate policy. I focused on climate justice, environmental justice, all of these issues. You know, uh, in black communities, you have um, inequity in the form of air quality. Uh, you have pollution. You have all of these things that have been out there. But quite frankly, when COVID-19 hit, and I started seeing my own timeline on Facebook and seeing how many deaths uh, that I was connected to, I then recognize this issue of uh, pre-existing conditions. You know, we all use that term pre-existing conditions, but quite rarely do we talk about its genesis. And its just genesis actually comes from the housing uh, market, as you know. Um, you all uh, well know this, but I think the connection between housing and transportation uh, and environmental justice is something that had not been discussed. And I think when you actually look at it, there's no question as to why black people are dying, why they bear the brunt of this COVID-19 uh, pandemic. And it's because it's our systems have been rooted in racism. They were uh, brought forth to keep people out, to marginalize people and to keep the races separate. And while one set of folks got resources and better communities, better access, better air quality, um, others didn't. Um, and it, it's sort of uh, intersectional because it's not only a, a class issue, but it's also a race issue as well. So to answer your question, I, that has been the, the biggest thing for me because of the impact in my own uh, life. You know, I, I work with um, several different localities around the country, advising them on their mobility networks. And one of the things that I mentioned to one of these folks was that, you know, if you're going to be talking about implementing a technological solution 
for mobility in a black community, you have to talk about the impact of COVID-19. That is a game changer for you uh, because I guarantee you the majority of those folks in those communities have had some sort of dealing with uh, COVID-19, whether it's losing a loved one or whether it is uh, something more direct. Yeah, I I will. uh, On that note, I I thought what I found really striking in the public health comment uh, or kind of context of this was I'd always had an assumption that it was that, yes, there was disparate impacts uh, in terms of health access um, that showed up in race, but that was really at its root socioeconomic. And what we're seeing, you know, I'll give the example here in D.C., that there is, you know, wildly disproportionate or disparate, um, you know, illnesses and severe illnesses and deaths in the, you know, parts of PG County that are, you know, that are kind of famous for being upper middle class African-American communities that like, it's not just the poor part of town has a, has a bad hospital and therefore gets bad, you know, has bad treatment that like it is that it really is at its heart. It's not just, an, a socioeconomic thing on its face that it, that there is a, a severe race, you know, that is a racial uh, kind of dis- disparate impacts and disparate access and quality of care. That I think that was really shocking to me was, was where it's not just communities where you would assume that this like that, okay, that makes sense with what we've known and seen on, on the kind of all different fronts um, from lack of investment. Yeah, yeah, totally agree with that. And for me, Pete, um, it it was sort of, you know, I'm seeing all this data uh, on television about what we know to be true in a lot of these industries, right? However, you know, you can't help but think that we something good can come out of it, and that's part of the work that I'm trying to do at Milk Silver. What the number one sort of thing I'm focused on is increasing the public education and public discourse around transportation, mobility, and the impact of urban technology um, and how that impacts black Americans, you know, because I feel that, you know, while there are a number of folks who have done this work over the past uh, decade or so, um, their work hasn't been called out specifically. And so I really want to promote um, a lot of that policy and those research efforts of these thought leaders who've been long established in the equity uh, uh, area and really highlight some of that work. Um, the other thing I'm, I'm really looking to do is convene some of the policymakers to develop actionable solutions. Um, I think because of the, the death, the killing, I should say, of George Floyd and the civil unrest that has followed, we have this moment where people um, are aware of themselves. Quite frankly, white people are aware to how they've been contributing to this uh, systematic racism that continues to perpetuate, perpetuate itself. And because of that, we've got a moment to really um, talk to people and to plan. And so what we're trying to do at NYU McSilver is convene some of the policymakers across the country and really develop these solutions uh, for our cities, things that uh, tech companies, particularly AV companies, can take with them uh, to uh, develop internally. I'd like to get a little bit more into that. So, uh, Henry, what are those specific uh, maybe policy levers that uh, are out there that haven't been discussed enough, uh, perhaps? Um, for AVs or, or maybe even more broadly? Yeah, so this is a deep question. And I sort of want to recognize, you know, uh, the moment that we're in when we're having this conversation. You're talking to a black guy 
who's worked at an AV company. I, I'm from black communities, live in black communities, but, but yet I've always had to sort of work in these worlds uh, where I'm always the minority and always the one sort of having to uh, deal with systematic racism, right? Uh, and so I want us to be very clear about the lens in which I'm, I'm, I'm coming from. And so there are a few things to answer your question. Um, number one, a lot of these companies, uh, I can honestly say, don't fully appreciate the impact of their work. You know, transportation planners will all will, will tell you that transportation can be the great equalizer, right? Um, but the tech companies, a lot of them are more focused on uh, making cargo, right? Making sure that the tech uh, aligns with the company's visions and that, mm-hmm. and that they can actually deploy a product, but it's deeper than that. You know, what we have is an industry that can really help people. It, it can really change the trajectory of this country. And it really gives us an opportunity to address the core foundation that is rotten uh, in which we are seeking to build upon. Uh, and so one of the things that I, I, I typically said when I worked at our uh, AV rideshare company is that we were looking to build upon the existing ecosystem. Right. Well, the mm-hmm. existing ecosystem is broken. Right. Yeah, you don't right. build on top of a broken house. <laughs> you have to <laughs> down to the foundation, fix your right. foundation, and then you build the house. Right. And so just to be fair with you, a lot of this uh, that I'm talking about is a journey that I've been on for the past two and a half to, to three years. Um, and so the first thing you need to do, quite frankly, is establish an employee led process that can develop a racial equity statement. What do you guys mean by racial equity? Why is it important to you? Why should you be doing this? And that really comes from the top. Uh, the, the, the leadership at these companies have to recognize that you are approaching uh, America being a majority minority country. It is in the financial interest of your company, if you are creating a product for everyone, that it, that it includes diversity and equity. And you need to define what that actually means. You know, I, I've heard uh, team leaders uh, in certain spaces say, you know, oh, I have the mer- most diverse team. And, you know, it can be under a certain definition. Uh, you know, having a team of mostly women is, is diverse. A- absolutely. But when that team doesn't include any African-Americans, you know, that's questionable as to whether you can actually uh, include the perspectives of everyone. So the first thing is this employee-led process to develop a racial equity statement. The next thing is really in tech specifically to, to acknowledge the existence of algorithmic bias. You know, um, you have to acknowledge how this is potentially harmful and how it can impact the development of your technology. And you have to take steps to remove such biases from your internal workflows, period. Again, it starts at the top. You need your CTOs to acknowledge that this actually exists. You know, some of the larger companies, um, they acknowledge that it exists, but they're forthcoming and saying, hey, we actually don't have the solution to this. I really think the first step is acknowledging that it exists so that the staff understands that they do approach their work with certain biases. We all do. We all have it. It's inherent in who we are. But to say Mm -hmm. that our technology uh, can move forward without acknowledging that there are these biases that can be imparted to the technology, that's, that's, that's wrong on its face. Number three, and again, it seems like I'm directing all my comments at leadership, but I'm really not. I'm directing it on the powers that be that can really facilitate this change. Um, Mm -hmm. But number three, I would probably say hire a chief diversity and inclusion officer, not a head of 
diversity inclusion, not a senior manager, not a manager, not even a director. You need a chief of diversity and inclusion, someone who's empowered to sit with the senior leadership team, the senior execs at the company to really talk about how you can institute uh, equity and what that means for the company. And, and someone who, you know, regardless of some mid-level director uh, on the chain, someone who can make sure these changes actually happen. It needs to be uh, connected to the commercial viability of the product. Uh, And the only way you can do that is by having a senior level person uh, do that. And so quite frankly, I I think a lot of companies make that mistake. But if you look at some of the larger, more successful tech companies, that's what they have in place. And there's a reason for that. I've got a lot more. (laughs) No, but on that point, I will notice and, and, and I don't want to, I'm not going to name any company names because I don't, I, it's not, yeah, a, let's not do that. but I, I have noticed on a number of occasions, a big announcement, a big hire. And then that person leaves within a, like after a little bit after a year is okay. Yes. And, with, and again, yes. without naming names. Yes. Does that speak to a, this job and this role and the, and the ear, you know, the amount of ear from the leadership that I was going to have was not what turned out to be the case. Look, I don't know the, the answer to that, like in specific situations. More than once or twice. And it kind of is like, yeah. that tells me that's not, Oh, that candidate fizzled. Um, and that yeah. that's more of a frustration because, I mean, we've all been, you know, we've all been in-house at, at a tech company and it's difficult to change like anything that's not, hey, I figured out this way to make more money or, or you know, and so it's hard. Totally. And I, I'm just curious if that's something that, you know, you can that you've heard or that that is, you know, beyond <laughs> just naming the person. Yes, Pete. It is something that I've heard. No, um, it's, listen, I think that issue is pervasive. It is pervasive. So let me tell you, um, I'm sort of getting down on my list and and I'm sorry, this is all in my head, but like one of my, my recommendations is really for there to be some sort of industry wide coalition or working group. And I'm talking about the AV industry to, to talk about solutions to root out systematic racism, uh, in the AV industry. And the reason why is so that you can deploy the biggest question, particularly for those who focus on passenger transport, is the uh, public acceptance piece. And in order to do that, you've got to conduct outreach, you've got to conduct education, and I also think you need to address racism. And so where you have an industry-wide coalition in which all uh, sort of companies are our members, you can help keep each other accountable and you can work on industry-wide uh, systematic issues. Um, and so I'm a big proponent of that model. I would say, you know, there, there's uh, PAVE, Partners uh, uh, for Education and... Vehicle Education. Thank you. Awesome. Great. Yeah. So you've got PAVE out there. Uh, you know, I would never volunteer someone to take on this work. Um, I think they are well positioned to focus on education. But if you had a PAVE-like entity uh, that focused on equity uh, in mobility, particularly AVs, I think that would go a long way to solving the problem of these uh, heads of diversity uh, not lasting long at these companies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And so, Henry, what, what would that look like? Would that group help to reach out to communities where a lot of AV companies are deployed? So how, how do you imagine that working yeah. uh, sort of in practice? So, sure. I don't think they would uh, reach out to these communities. That's not what they're there for. What they are there for is to ensure that the industry is doing what it needs to do internally and that companies who are a part of it have the resources that they need. Now, one of the things that's really important about this equity work is to recognize that it's a discipline. Like, you don't just come into this, okay? Um, And that's why I'm sort of hesitant to say that I I focus on equity, Um, mainly because, you know, I'm a guy, you guys know my background, you know, I have not focused on equity, but there are experts who have. And so what you need to do is you need to work with the experts who focus in equity. Now, like, there are several that I could name, you know, in, in, in California, Greenlining is one that folks uh, toss out there. Uh, there. There's Transform. There's a group called uh, EV Hybrid Noir, uh, which is fantastic. You need to find these equity mm-hmm. experts who are out there uh, and who have studied this, not only, uh, you know, from a sort of a, a, a deployment perspective, but from a research and academic perspective um, on how to operationalize equity. And you need to leverage those resources. You cannot give this to some senior manager and say, hey, you should focus on this pet project. It, it's a little bit more uh, deeper than that. And so um, leveraging these diversity, equity, and inclusion experts is paramount to this effort. And in that, you know, you develop metrics, uh, you help to lead the internal efforts, and you give these companies the best practices that they need uh, to hold themselves and each other accountable. I love it. I love it. Now, I I had a follow-up to my earlier question, which and why I was so specific about asking what you personally were most struck by. Because the follow-up to that is, is what issue that's always been so clear to you is now, is now getting catch on by some, by guys who look like me who are finally like, Oh my God, did you guys realize that, you know, like one that I, one that I, I think really did have a lot of, of a spotlight put on it and was actually a big topic, at least in, you know, urban Twitter world leading up to and right before, um, the murder of George Floyd, uh, as we were talking about open streets for COVID, that there was a, there were a lot of voices on on urban Twitter and and almost and let's not even say almost every single one of them were black planners and and urban you know urban um, I don't know what we're called urban new urbanists that were saying hey guys uh, you know open streets and safe streets for Ooh. whom like this Ooh. is a big deal. And so, like, that one was, like, and I remember at the time being, like, so what are we, we're, so are we not supposed, whatever. And then when you had, and I'm, I'm blanking on the gentleman's name um, it, outside of, in Georgia. And yeah, Ahmaud like, Arbery, yeah. yeah, yeah. Ahmaud Arbery. And it was kind of, like, okay, I, I think I see what, the, what they're talking about. And then as, you know, as, as after the murder of George Floyd and the, the kind of conversation got real, it was, like, okay, they've been trying to tell us this for for you know much longer than the last couple of months on twitter but like what are the, so anyway so the longest question ever to a short question is <laughs> what issue would you say is finally that like the rest of 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 kind of traditional transportation planning and the white planners are now finally getting that has been blatantly obvious forever it's actually quite simple um for me it's the lack of mobility options and black 
communities. That is what's been painfully obvious. Let me tell you what happened in New York City. You know, I'm from New York City. I live in Brooklyn. You know, um, when COVID-19 hit, a lot of our neighbors, those with means, they left. (laughs) Okay. And a lot of them are still gone. They left. All right. Those who were stuck in the city uh, were those who did not have the means to leave. And also they did not have the mobility options, particularly in the outer boroughs of New York City, uh, that uh, is optimal. And so that's the answer to your question. But I have to take a step back just on the open street stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, for, for me, and again, I want to be really vulnerable with you guys and honest with you guys. I'm someone who's worked in transportation for the better part of the last 10 years. I get how urban planners think. I'm not one. I'm a trained lawyer. Um, but I, I tend to agree with a lot of urban planners when we talk about the need for open streets initiatives. And at heart, I want to agree with that. But as a black man living in Brooklyn, I got to tell you, that's actually not what I want to see without some things happening first. Number one, you've got to talk with your NYPD and let them know that, okay, guys, black people are going to be outside. Please do not give them a hard time because we are encouraging them to be outside. That is a problem. That is definitely a problem. Number two, you have to talk to all neighbors to let them know what's happening. And this is what we need in terms of engagement. We need proper engagement in black communities by by government stakeholders to talk to people and let them know what's happening so that all the neighbors in the community understand what's happening and that we are providing open streets as a way to encourage people to socially distance and be outside of their homes, right? A lot of that communication, quite frankly, wasn't happening here in New York City. I have the utmost respect for uh, NYC DOT. I worked for them. My colleagues are there. Um, however, a lot of that wasn't happening. And my own personal experiences can tell, uh, told me that it wasn't happening. Um, open streets initiatives, bike lanes, all of these things, you have to take extra precaution when you're talking with black communities. And the reason why is quite simple. They've been marginalized, lied to, and ignored for so many years, okay? And so, yes, it is extra work to engage these communities. You have to pay the price for our ancestors, okay? Um, And that's part of what equity is. It's this acknowledgement um, of these atrocities that have happened in the past, you know? Yes, we're talking about slavery or, you know, what I call human trafficking. Yes, we're talking about Jim Crow South. Yes, we're talking about the civil rights movement. Again, we're talking about a people were lied to by the federal government repeatedly. You know, one of the stories Mm -hmm. that was repeated to me as a child was the Tuskegee experiments and how they Mm -hmm. lied to black men and they gave them syphilis. I mean, this stuff is passed down generationally. Okay, and I think that, um, quite frankly, white America is not attuned to these things because they've never had to listen to their mom explain to them when they were little that these are the things that happen. Or with my mom, you know, my mom's grandmother was a slave, guys. Like, so this is pretty recent for me. Okay, I've heard the stories of what that was like, you know, for uh, my mother's grandmother, who as a as a child was a house slave and had to fan white people, you know, and so. These things are carried down generationally. You have to keep that in mind when you're implementing these initiatives. You have to keep that in mind when you're introducing new technology. And my thing is this. If you're saying your technology is for everyone, you need to make 
you need to make the steps to ensure that everyone is included uh, and that everyone understands what you're doing uh, and your intentions. Wow. Yeah. No, I, I, when you were saying the kind of all the stories that, uh, you know, that basically white America is just learning. The, the, the fact of how many people are learning about Fred Hampton right now is just, uh, is almost oh, common. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> shameless, shameless, shameless plug. The, the, the yeah. director and I grew up together. He's like my big brother. That story that he's, that he's telling, uh, he's thought about that for years, uh, probably 20 years. Fred Hampton to us is a hero. Uh, what they did to him in Chicago uh, is one of the, You'll see the movie, but the story is just awful. He was a young kid and they went in and killed him and his family. You know, it's just, it's just awful stuff. And these are the things that we grow up hearing. I remember for me as a kid growing up, listening to the the Black Panthers, my immediate uh, question to my mom was who are the Black Panthers? How can I learn more about them? And come to find out my mom was a a big supporter of the Black Panthers. She wasn't one, but the the programs that they introduced to the community, their breakfast programs, their education programs, that really sustained uh, Black America. It really sustained the life in Black communities and it provided them with resources that quite frankly, they weren't getting from the government. Uh, And so the Black Panther Party has gotten a bad rap Um, And I'm not a part of them. I don't know what they're up to these days. But I do want to point out for many, many people during the 60s, they provided uh, lots and lots of uh, different essential services. Well, and we're watching the exact playbook be applied in terms of demonizing the Black Panthers into demonizing anyone who steps out and, and protests. Uh, Black Lives Matter is now is, you know, is now being turned into Antifa. And, and it's, it's, it's a pretty, that? yeah, absolutely. I, I, really quickly, Black Lives Matter. You know, I got I got to jump on this one. It's controversial, but as uh, you know, the late great John Lewis says, you know, we're gonna stir up some good trouble here. You know, Black Lives Matter. Here's the deal. You know, the phrase is supposed to be bold, but it means more than that. You know, and unfortunately. Folks, you know, have not gotten the meaning. And I've heard tech CTOs and CEOs not understand why they need to be behind Black Lives Matter. What it means is Black Lives Matter also. Black Lives Matter just as much as anyone else. And why we're calling out Black Black Lives Matters is because implicitly they haven't mattered. Okay, yeah. that that's what this is all about. Like this isn't some and listen, there are there are extreme parts of every uh, sort of group out there that you can name. But what we're talking about is the heart of this sort of says, you know, we care about Black Lives Matter and things were so messed up that we we, we got to say it. You know, that's how bad it is. And so, well, you know, and the fact that you, the fact yeah. you're opposing that and will not say it tells me why we need to say. Yeah. And let me tell you something. Blue lives matter too. White lives matter too. They all matter. But what I'm saying is, you know, black lives didn't matter for a very long time. Um, and a lot of that resonates even today in, in how we live and work in our communities. Uh, and it's so pervasive that we don't even realize it. Like it, it, it's like this, this, this disease, this virus, this infection that we all have. And we don't know that we're inflicted. I got to tell you guys, professionally, you know, I was looking back at some of my experiences and I realized what I was going through, the discomfort that I felt that I couldn't name at that time, it was racism. And it wasn't mm-hmm. because the person 
inflicting racism racism on me was wearing a, a white sheet. You know, they were probably a good-hearted, good-natured person, but the system in which we all inherited uh, it, it is racist in nature, and we have to work double time to overcome it. And now is the moment to do it. People are aware. They, they want to do it. And that's part of the work that I'm trying to do at uh, NYU McSola. That's awesome. I mean, I, I, it, it is past time that these have not only the attention, but the resources and, and guys like you really focused on this. Um, I, I want to talk one thing when we, you know, when we talk about equity in this space, you know, we typically tend to talk about it as, you know, new technologies and, and lack and areas where they're lacking. Um, we'll get to it next. You mentioned TNCs. I, I would love to hear your thoughts were um, on the whole, uh, you know, as a net positive or negative, where where were you, where do you do you believe uh, TNCs were a net positive or negative to from the world as it was pre TNCs uh, from a, the perspective of equity and, and mobility options uh, for minorities and the like? Yeah, this is uh, easy one for me. TNCs are net positive by far, <laughs> and. I'll give you the personal, but then go a little bit more broad. Pete, when you and I were working for the Secretary of Transportation, I would go home on the weekends on Amtrak. I would leave D.C. and go and visit my family and then come back for the weekend, Sunday nights. And Sunday nights, I could not get a cab back to my apartment. There were so many times when I'm pissed off leaving on the last train from New York City, and I would arrive in D.C., and I could not get a cab, and I would have to walk home. Okay, and then someone uh, actually we both know this person said, hey, why don't you just try Uber? Uh, Uber was a game changer for me and many others. Actually, no, it wasn't. But you were there that day. (laughs) But um, it it was a game changer. So, yes, that simple example changed my life. Um, I got a ride that was safe. I didn't have to walk the D.C. streets late at night. Um, But I think for a lot of people, what it really did is in these communities and these black communities, um, where there wasn't a lot of access, and uh, and I will say, particularly for New York City, if you were traveling from Manhattan to one of the outer boroughs, I mean, good luck. It was the wild, wild west. You know, in fact, you know, uh, a friend of mine, he made a movie about our experience as teenagers trying to get home to Brooklyn from Manhattan late at night. Uh, It's called Get Home Safe. It was on HBO. Guilty plug. But, you know, TNCs have done a lot. Um, there's arguments to be made that they got rid of a lot of these sort of gypsy services uh, in the city. And for that, I have to say, I'm disappointed that a lot of these minority business owners uh, went out of business. But at the same time, I have to say that, you know, technology, um, you know, provides um, benefits. And I think a larger number of people were able to benefit from the services that these TNCs provided. And uh, do I think they they went far enough? No, not at all. Uh, But I think the TNCs give us a great uh, way to sort of look at how you can connect communities by providing services uh, in communities that have uh, traditionally been ignored. I totally agree. And and I might have shared this previously on the podcast, but, uh, it, you know, Henry, I, I used to be a, an Uber and Lyft driver. I, I, I drove basically, you know, full time uh, back in 2015 when I was trying to get in the transportation sector. And um, I was in D.C. and a lot of the rides that I got um, were, were across the uh, Anacostia, so I'd have to cross the bridge over. It took me about 15, 20 minutes to get to the passengers. And 
pretty regularly. The person would call me directly and say, please don't cancel. And, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Oh. you know, the, and, and I was like, well, no, I'm, I'm going to come pick you up. Like you requested a ride. But there were so many drivers that, that, that apparently were, were choosing not to take those rides. And often those trips that I was fulfilling uh, were for people to go to the grocery store. Uh, there are many times where they would ask me to, you know, wait in the Safeway parking lot because it would take a long time to get a ride again to take groceries back. And for a neighborhood that, or for a, a significant chunk of DC that only has uh, two supermarkets, uh, while many of the wealthier areas have a lot of them, um, you know, effectively making it a, a food desert, you know, it, it shows a lot of the inequities that we've seen created and how important transportation access is there. Um, but I, I was yeah. <laughs> as, as happy as I was with 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 the outcome of help of helping people get to and from. Uh, I was also frustrated that you know other drivers were not fulfilling those trips. Um, it, it was immensely frustrating. So, Greg, uh, congratulations! You now have insight into what it's like being a black person, and I've, I've been there. You know, I didn't even think about, you know, what I've done to, to ensure that my ride was not canceled because of the neighborhood I'm going into. Like, I would, mm-hmm. I would want to make sure my profile pic uh, was one of me smiling so that I didn't look uh, intimidating in some for- form or fashion. And, you know, there, it, it, this is difficult stuff, you know, because one school of 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 thought tells you that that's assimilating, right? And that sort of bowing down to the system in which we live in, which again is is rooted in racism. Uh, Another school of thought says, be as you are. You know, folks need to learn who you are so that they can accept you. I don't know where I fall. I'm probably on the ladder these days, quite frankly. Uh, But uh, those are definitely real world experiences for sure. I do want to touch upon one thing that you said, and it's... uh, groceries and essential service. And I, for me, I think AVs can be a huge, huge part of that. Uh, and I'm excited to see what comes. Um, I think personally think passenger service is uh, well uh, down the way, and, but I think you can create additional acceptance uh, through uh, goods delivery. So optimistic to see uh, what, what comes next. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and, and without jumping into you know a, a, a neuro commercial, I think you know one of, the, one, of the, one of the reasons I was excited to uh, to join Neuro was 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 because uh, that application would uh, help to realize all those benefits a lot sooner. Um, you know, I, I wrote this blog post when I joined about uh, my hometown, uh, which is in Central Valley, California, food rich area, uh, breadbasket of the world, immense food access issues, immense. And a lot of that was tied into transportation access, but also the choice of where grocery stores are built. And these are the structures and the systems we have to be thinking about and that we turn a blind eye to for, for way too long. Yeah. Agreed. So I want to turn to, to my next question talks, you know, it gets more into the trying to figure out whether or not AVs are going to be a game changer for the positive or you know, or, or what. Um, and one of the things that is also, again, that, you know, uh, guys like me are just starting to really realize, um, given the, you know, in, in the debate of the, or discussion of the last several months, uh, is just the wildly disparate experiences and the consequences of interactions with law enforcement for African-Americans, um, when, and, and in particular, 
that the number of and the frequency of those interactions coming uh, from motor vehicle stops. Uh, you know, the the case of what Sandra Bland in was outside Houston, uh, you know, literally a kind of didn't put her blinker on somehow ends up with her, her kind of being tased, threatened with tased, put in prison and somehow mysteriously dying. Um, that doesn't happen to me. That does probably doesn't happen to Greg. And I'm curious your thoughts, where, where, how does that element of, of inequity and, and, and kind of injustice, how does that play out in a world of autonomous vehicles, whether it's a road, especially, I guess I was thinking about this today that, you know, when you talk about a, a, an AV shared system, you know, like a, like what Cruz is looking at or a robo taxi model, does, can, does that get pulled over when the cop sees there's a, that there's a black passenger and can he search the, you know the passenger? Like how do, how do you think that AVs play into that um, that dynamic uh, of kind of of injustice? Yeah, just to be clear, uh, I am going to respond to that question, but I do not represent Cruz or I'm no, no, not no. sharing anything uh, that Cruz is sort of working on. Uh, but for me, I think AV companies, by and large, you've seen this with Waymo. They released their law enforcement interaction plan. Um, they are working on ways in which law enforcement can make these stops, and law enforcement is aware is aware of how to treat these vehicles and uh, what information can be shared is is a topic of of discussion. Um, for me, again, putting my hat on uh, as a black male, when I think about Sandra Bland and Philando Castillo, who was killed in front of his, his, his partner and his, his child, um, I welcome AVs in, in that scenario, but recognize there still needs to be a great deal of conversations to be had on mobility uh, and safety and autonomous vehicles. And so... If you're thinking about um, equity and autonomous vehicles, and uh, you, you 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 tend to overlook safety, and what I'm trying to explain is that safety means more than just perception, what this vehicle can see. Uh, it means more than just preventing car crashes. It's quite broad. And you need to think about if you're deploying these vehicles uh, in black communities, communities of color, you need to think about what that means uh, in terms of law enforcement uh, interaction and engagement. And what I'm seeing is we are still at these very nascent stages uh, and this has not been figured out yet. And so I'm optimistic uh, and, but I'm hesitant to say that this will be safer uh, but I, I'm optimistic at what AVs can provide. Um, the list of people who have been killed at these stops is way too long for me. It, and it, it hits me. Yeah. Um, and so that, that is sort of my answer to that. Yeah, I think it's good. I think it's one of many, you know, fascinating and completely unanswered legal questions, you know, kind of like the early, like the liability questions out there, like who's, you know, who's the insurance pays. But, you know, if I'm riding in a, you know, we won't say cruiser, you know, Pete's robo taxi, you know, and if you're riding in one of my robo taxis and the, you know, a taillight is out, who, you know, the, is the cop pulling the vehicle over and searching you, the passenger? Um, I, you know, I, it, I, I, and, it, you know, again, that is not a, unlikely scenario that, you know, that will happen in this future. So, um, yeah. I, I, just, 
it's just a, a, a Kevin. Uh, so I'll give a shout out to uh, to Kevin Webb who was citing and kind of promoted the actually yesterday on um, on Twitter the uh, a podcast episode from the ninety nine percent invisible dot org, um, and they were uh, interviewing the the author of a book called Policing the Open Road: How Cars Transform Transformed American Freedom, and it just digs into all of this. The book's arriving tomorrow, and I was like, I would almost want to like hold off on this on recording this because it just it sounds yeah. fascinating. But it's just, that I, that I was like, that's another topic that like I haven't yeah. really thought of in the per, you know, how pervasive it is and how do, how do we address that as a, as a broader industry in, in terms of the future of you know mobility yeah sure it, it's again i'm cautiously optimistic um it's a it's a thing you know i'm, I'm someone I, I have my insurance i've got my license but i gotta tell you you know one of my dreams is actually to do a, a cross-country uh trip you know uh drive across this country uh one of the things that has stopped me from doing that is my fear of police interactions, uh, mm-hmm. you know, away from home. And so I haven't done that. That's a very, very real scenario for me and for a lot of other people. And it may sound like it's unrealistic uh, to, to some of the people listening, but I got to tell you, it's a very real thing. And so that's why, you know, again, I'm optimistic, but hesitant to say, okay, this is going to resolve all of our problems. Our problems are deep. Okay. Uh, and without meaningful conversations uh, between communities, police departments, and AV companies on this, uh, I don't see us moving this issue forward. I see us having a different set of issues. I absolutely agree. And I, I think that, that, that leads uh, pretty well into, uh, into our next uh, question we, we wanted to ask you. Um, you know, you've, you've sat in influential policy roles at uh, the federal level at USDOT, um, and at the city level at New York City DOT, um, and also you were at, in the private sector at Cruise. So it, for any young professionals that might be listening to this um, who have been watching what's been happening over the past few months and decided they wanted to go um, and, and, and make an impact in addressing racial and socioeconomic injustice um, with a focus on transportation, um, what roles would you suggest they pursue or, or how should they be thinking about um, how to make, how to make this impact? Cause it, it's such a large field and there's, and I guess there's so many ways to slice this, right? Yeah, I think, um, man, so it's a very, very broad field. Um, I think that you need to get as close to the issue as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and meaning, you want to do the work where you're the work in communities in which you're trying to have the most impact. You want to have an understanding firsthand an understanding of what it's like uh, to actually try to implement solutions, mobility solutions in these communities. Uh, it's really important to not rely on uh, the viewpoints and perspectives of others if you're going to be a leader in the space. So that's number one. Whether you do that at a, at a tech company, let's say you do that at Lime and you're doing community engagement and you're you're really working in communities uh, to, to, to bring more e-scooters. Yes, I, I think that works. Whether it's uh, at, at a DOT where they're focused on, on, on safety and, and pedestrian and, and cyclist safety. And yes, I think that works. Um, but I think that is critical to any sort of um, uh, education or uh, advancement in the field. Uh, 
because of what the folks who you are serving have gone through. You have to really understand what they have been through. You have to have gone through a community meeting where they have just yelled at every city stakeholder there is in the room. You have to, you know, you go through that and it gives you an understanding of why it's important to people. One of the biggest lessons that I've learned uh, in much of that work is people want to be heard. You know, um, when I was working at an AV company, uh, I went into communities where they fundamentally agreed with AVs. Um, But by the end of our engagement, they at least heard us out and they wouldn't actively sort of go against us. And the reason why is because we sat there, we listened to them, uh, authentically listened. We were interested in the, the issues that they had uh, to raise. And then we sort of said, all right, well, here's why we think we can help. Um, and I don't think a lot of that happens. Uh, and I think um, I think for a young person, you do have to understand that this work is more than meets the eye. It's not just about going into transportation because you played Sim City as a kid. I don't even know if there's still some <laughs> I'm dating myself. We're on the skyline show. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it, it, it's not just about that. The work that you do actually has a real world effect. And if you do it wrong, you are perpetuating racism. Like that's the mm-hmm. bottom line. And you have to you have to be okay with that. You have to be okay with the decisions that you've made and you have to be educated. You have to be informed. And so um, for me, I think planners in particularly, we we need to to give planners more education on how to actually deal with people. They need to be working with uh, schools of social work, like the NYU silver school to really understand the psychology of people. They They need to understand history. And to a certain degree they do. Um, but, uh, there needs to be a lot more of that so we can have understanding. Uh, so it's a difficult question to ask because it's a broad field, but I guess my answer is, you know, getting as close to the people in which you, you hope to help, uh, as possible. That's where you want to start. Uh, and then you can branch off from there. Mm-hmm. And, and it sounds like, oh, I was going to say, it sounds like on, in any of those roles, you got to get out of the office, you know, mm-hmm. you, you know that, 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 you know, you can't, it's not a, well, in non-COVID times, it's not a, well, and, and in COVID times, but it's not just, a, I, I went to the conference and I heard about how terrible this is, but it's oh, like, yeah. no, you be like, and I really do as, as often mind numbing as they are and, and frustrating, I'm sure for the CDA officials, the, the, it's much like campaigning, being out there and knocking doors is the only way you're really going to get, um, to, to understand the pulse of, of someone that you're trying to, you're supposedly saying that you're leading, you know, and, and serving. So. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that came to me is, as you were talking, uh, Henry was, is that, you know, what, what I take from that is that, well, we all know this to be true. Uh, transportation access and transportation and actual mobility um, is the, one of the number one determinants of social and economic mobility. Um, and from that lens, whether you're in the public sector or you're in the private sector, um, everything that you do uh, is in some way sort of a public service helping people get from point A to point B. And I, and I think that that, that mindset on, and realizing how important that is, um, is, is what should be instilled uh, in the transportation sector. And, and hopefully we're coming to that point of, of reckoning, uh, of realizing that. You know, I honestly think we are. Um, 
we are from many, many different uh, vantage points. Uh, I'm hoping we as an industry, I think the mobility industry. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I was because I was like, call it out. Call it out. But at the same time, we're also like, hey, guys, FYI, the literally the, the entire transit industry nationwide right now is about to go under because of you know because of what's going on and and like we're not you know it's a debate of whether or not we should you know maybe give them some money from you know under you know the ne- next cares act like we you know, in our in our circular you know conversations are like yeah we all get this is so essential but like do we as a says actually you know entire society actually value that yeah i i, I take that back and probably not <laughs> Uh, probably not. And sorry to misconstrue my words. I, I, I guess I was referring to uh, the smaller community that sort of works uh, on these issues. Um, but I, I think you're absolutely right, specifically on the transit piece. Transit is problematic. Uh, and, you know, I, it was problematic when we were working on these issues at USDOT, Pete. Uh, we, we worked on bills in which, you know, transit dollars were continually being decreased, Right. Uh, and so can you imagine what our jobs would look like now (laughs) if we were at USDOT, just given what the current landscape is? Um, I I think, and that's part of what I'm trying to do again at the NYU McSilver Institute is really bring light to some of these issues, transit in particular. Transit is how people get around in, in major cities, especially in New York City, uh, and, they are giving sort of dire warnings by the day about the billions of dollars needed for the federal government just to uh, just for the MTA to stay afloat. And I don't think the message is resonating. And it's not that, you know, the alarm isn't sounding. It's just people aren't hearing it. Uh, and so I do think as professionals, we do need to think about different tactics. Yeah, no, it's it's rough. So, uh, I mean, we could go on forever, and we need to. I mean, I think I, I we, Henry, we were talking about this kind of in the prep when we were getting ready to, to record. And what the toughest thing here is that there's not a now that we've had this this you know much long overdue and much needed, and and I would say it, it feels like the most sincere conversation thus far on the mat on in on inequity and and racial injustice and all that. But there's not that one bill at the end of the day that, you know, there's not the Civil Rights Act that just needs to get passed. And, and then we can all say, woof, that was, you know, that was historic. Like what we're talking about here is is kind of it's just a grind. It's it's everything. It's every small decision keeps make, being made and and furthering these injustices. And that's a lot harder to solve. And it's not. And it involves this going on, you know, this awareness and this conversation never going away. So, I mean, uh, what are your thoughts on on that element of it? And how do we keep this going? I mean, we obviously we can't be in the streets in, per, in perpetuity, but like how do we, you know, symbolically be in the streets on all of these small decisions? That add well, you know, Yeah, you know. One of the issues is the the problem with the term equity itself. And, um, you know, Greg has heard me say this before. The problem is it's so broad. Like when we say equity, like what are we talking about? We need to get specific. And that's the first thing. Uh, Number two, I I would say 
you know, you need to have strategies to what we call operationalize equity into everything. And that's why this is so hard. It's hard because we need to in, uh, have equity in the way we design our technology, uh, the way we engage with communities. We need to have equity in, you know, how we uh, bring together our staff and how we hire. Uh, it's so pervasive. Uh, and often when we use the term, we don't uh, include any specifics behind it um, and we don't talk about what we mean. And that's why one of the first things that I, I, I said was you need an employee-led process to, to develop a company-wide racial equity statement because you've got to define it uh, for you. I think that is the way you keep it front and center uh, because you're right. Uh, the outrage tends to dissipate after some time. Uh, I think we're still very much in, in that moment. Um, but I think those uh, proponents to who are working to ensure that equity uh, is included in everything, they, they're on a time clock. Uh, and so we really have to do our jobs to highlight some of the issues and make sure that we are specific when talking about solutions. Agreed. Oh. Yeah, no, yeah, it, exactly. So, yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> no, honestly. So, I, I'm and I'm equity, this is how I feel. Yeah, no, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm exhausted. I'm, I'm totally I, I'm, exhausted. But I was like, I'm about to say I'm exhausted because, wow, this has been a like really heavy thinking about this for an hour. And it's like, yes, as opposed to every single hour of your, you know, an entire mm-hmm. life. So, it, it okay. is a. It's such an important topic. Like I'm Henry, I'm really glad that, to have you in particular on this, but also, um, you know, hopeful that not only, you know, all of us can be better, just can be better allies and, 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 and be, stop being, uh, even when we are not intentionally doing it, being part of the problem. So agree. If I, if I could, I don't know how much time I have left, but you know, I talked about the need for an employee-led process to establish a company-wide racial equity statement. I talked about, you know, leadership acknowledging the existence of algorithmic bias. I talked about the need for a chief diversity and inclusion officer rather than, you know, sort of a lower level employee. Um, I, I talked about the need for an industry-wide uh, coalition. Uh, I talked about, no, I'm sorry, I didn't talk about the fact that we need uh, a, a more inclusive public engagement strategy that includes all communities and having the right people to go out there and deliver these messages. Uh, And and Greg, I think you guys at Neuro are well positioned to do that because I think people will accept uh, what you're trying to deliver to them. You're trying to deliver to them essential goods. Uh, But anyway, I I also think that you need to commit a a long-term effort to recruit candidates from historically black colleges and universities. And a lot of people don't understand why that's important. For us in the black community, these universities are our Harvard They are our Yale. They are a source of pride when members of our community attend them. They are fantastic institutions. And because they're not part of this large mainstream uh, uh, fabric of society, they're often forgotten about. But you've got some of the top tech talent at these HBCUs. These are the cream of the crop. And so why don't we have long-term efforts to recruit from these universities? Why don't we recognize that recruiting at these universities may be different than going to, uh, I don't know, a Stanford? They're different. It's culturally different. You know, some of the other things these companies need to do is, um, and I think I mentioned the hiring of um, diversity, equity, inclusion experts, not 
not leaving this discipline uh, to to a pet project uh, of folks internally, really going out there and hiring people who've been doing this work. Got to tell you, this work in the mobility space, the research in, in equity, it's been led by black women. Black women have been leading this work for years And these companies really need to link with them and figure out how they can, you know, uh, introduce equity into their solution. We need more research and we need to be more specific about what we're doing. So I know that was a lot, but not only do we need like the research and education, VCs need to invest great ideas and great companies that are being started and, and run by, by my, by black men and women. Totally. Totally. I'm actually working on a project uh, with NYU. I'm trying to highlight uh, some black startups in New York in the mobility space. And what's interesting is the barriers that they're encountering. It's not that they don't exist. It's the barriers uh, due to systematic racism. Uh, And folks don't acknowledge that's what it is, to be fair with you. But that's what it is. And that's why they're having difficulty. But I got to tell you also, they're also moving forward. They're not letting that stop them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. mm-hmm. Okay. Anyway, that, that's fascinating. We could, we, I, we could, and probably should do an entire next episode with how to, you know, talking about the um, investment side of this because, as we've seen in, in all of this in mobility, getting that investment and, and leadership is is how you're able to to kind of drive great ideas from great people. So, um, and we've now topped an hour and so for our half hour podcast, but I'm glad we did. This is, this is a very important topic and, um, and an amazing guest to, to talk about it and a, and a great friend of mine and friend of the podcast. So, uh, Henry, thank you for coming on. Um, the, the, the kind of, I think the next thing is where can people find you to follow your work and what you're doing? Um, and, and how can they find you online? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I'm at henrylgreenwich.com and ourmobilefuture.com. That's ourmobilefuture.com. Or you can find me on LinkedIn, Henry L. Greenwich. Um, I'm out there. Um, would love to connect with folks who are interested in operationalizing equity or folks who just have questions and want to know more. Um, I'm happy to be that person. So. That's awesome. Thanks again, Pete. Really Greg, appreciate no, it. Oh, Greg, how, where can we find you? Yeah, you can find me uh, at AVGregar. Perfect. And then uh, this is Pete. You can find me at uh, Catapult. Uh, oh, shit, I don't even remember what it is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. You can also find the Mobility Podcast uh, at Mobility Podcast on Twitter. And guess what the URL is? Uh, MobilityPodcast.com. Uh, Perfect. Thank you all. And uh, yeah, we will see you guys very soon. Thanks, Henry. Awesome. Thanks, Henry. Thanks, guys.